Today's episode is brought to you by Unanimous Craft. Unanimous Craft is a website where you can find places to sell your handmade and small batch work. At unanimouscraft.com, you'll find an index of brick and mortar shops, online selling venues, and craft shows around the country. Visit unanimouscraft.com slash naps for a special offer just for Walsh Naps listeners. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 80 of the Walsh Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about diversity and inclusion in the quilting community with my guest, Maddie Curte. Maddie Curte is the mother of six children, the founder of Badass Quilter Society, an industry consultant, and a rabble rouser. She's bent on setting a bigger table, not building a higher fence in the world of quilting. Maddie is also the owner of Spool, a local quilt shop in Chattanooga, Tennessee. The shop is currently for sale. Maddie Curte, welcome. Thanks, Abby. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I have been a reader of the Badass Culture Society blog and follower on Facebook for at least a year now, and um, it's wonderful to have a chance to talk to you and talk about what you've been writing about and thinking about all this time. So, um, so you started quilting, it sounds like, in maybe around 2010 after seeing a post on Jackie Gehring's blog. And I wondered if you remember what that post was and sort of what about it made you decide, hey, I might want to try quilting. I think more than anything, it was the visuals on the blog. And I honestly don't remember what they were. But I remember that it struck me and it really resonated with me that maybe um, – I wasn't out there alone and that doing this quilting thing, because it really was, and I like air quoting around it, this quilting thing, because I had sewn forever. I'd sewn since I was a young girl, but I really hadn't done quilting. And it always seemed to be the dominion of somebody who was older and um, quite a bit more conservative than I was. So it was really fun and exciting to see that there might be other possibilities out there. Okay, so did you, you grew up in Oklahoma? I did grow up in Oklahoma, Edmond. In Edmond, okay. And what did your parents do for work? Um, My mother was a laboratory technologist and my father was in the advertising business. Okay, and did you have siblings as well? I do, I have a younger sister by 18 months. Oh, wow. Okay, so pretty close in age. And so um, was your, you said you were sewing when you were younger. Um, Was your mom sewing or your dad or you just kind of came up with the idea to start sewing on your own? Um, I've written about this before, so it's no big secret out there. Um, My mom was what we would refer to today as like severely clinically depressed. And so she had sewn at one point. In fact, she sewed her maternity clothes and possibly some of my baby clothes. But by the time I was old enough, so about nine years old, um, she was not sewing anymore. And one day I happened to be doing the thing that kids do sitting on the floor in the living room. And I looked under the desk that was in the corner and I realized there was something up inside of that desk. And I um, started fiddling around and Um, found out that it was a sewing machine and I asked her if I could sew and she said sure but I'm not going to teach you and um, and that was speaking out of her own depression and as an adult now I understand it quite a bit better but um, I went ahead and opened that up and taught myself how to sew. 
Wow. So, but that's pretty hard to do. I mean, a sewing machine, when you, if you've really never used one before, you know, when you first see it, you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> where does this thread go? And it's easy to get tangled and, and to not quite know. Did you, um, did you truly just learn on your own or did anybody help you or, or did you have any lessons at school? No, my school did not have, of course, I was only nine then. So let's see, maybe fourth grade. Right. And um, so I started sewing then. It had a book. It was a Bernina sewing machine. It was a beautiful Bernina. In fact, I still own that machine now. And so, in fact, it's sitting at my store uh, at this moment. But it had a book with it. The book um, was geared towards somebody who obviously would not be getting um, instruction someplace else. So it walked you step by step through. I could read. I There are amazing little notes that I've made all through it. When I look back at my childhood hand in this book, it's pretty interesting because there's like diagrams and I wrote little arrows that said, do this for that. And so as I figured out different things about the machine, um, I made notes in the book. And so that is kind of interesting to look back on. But no, I did totally teach myself. Um, a little while later, I had a really wonderful next door neighbor and we happened to be staying with her. My parents were out of town for a while and um, she actually took me out and bought me fabric and worked me through making um, a little sheared kind of um, summer top thing, but I made it mostly myself because I already knew how to run a sewing machine. But she was the first person to kind of validate the fact that I was sewing. But otherwise, I was um, scanning fabric throughout the house. I was taking apart old um, pillowcases and stuff like that to make uh, items. Wow, that's really ambitious and admirable. I mean, I think that's wonderful. And um, and you were s- certainly really motivated, self-motivated uh, at a young age, which is which is wonderful. And so, um, so were you mostly kind of trying to make clothing for yourself, or were you just making pillows, or do you remember what those projects were besides the top? The first project I ever made actually was out of, it was either a sheet or a pillowcase, but it was pink. I remember that. And it was a pillow with some lace and there'd been lace left over from something else. I actually don't know where that part came from. And I made a pillow. And then after that, I started making clothing, uh, pretty rudimentary kind of stuff. But, you know, if you can get a hold of some string and some fabric, you can make a drawstring skirt. So I would do things like that, and then I just went on from that point. That's great. Okay, so um, so you when you finished um, high school and you were sort of ready to go out into the world, I mean, what did you think you wanted to be, and kind of what did you do next? Um, my actually, my original trajectory was go to go to medical school. Oh, and yeah, I know, kind of crazy. Um, and then, like a lot of people, life got derailed. I got married, and I had a baby. And, but I was still going to go back to medical school. And then I got the information about the daycare system that you checked your baby in at 6 a.m. and checked them out at 7 p.m. every day. You checked them in, checked them out. And I just couldn't jive that with the way I wanted to be a mother. And so I kind of put that other dream on hold. Okay. Um, so did you, did you end up finishing college or were you being a mom? No, I didn't end up finishing college. Um, I actually had another baby uh, less than two years after that. And then af- then um, I was pretty deep into the motherhood thing. Yeah. Moved on to um, another career. Wow. So what did you end up doing for work during that time of 
intense babies and childcare, which I've been through. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I had three kids in about four and a half years. Oh, by wow. And I was catering and um, oh. doing sewing for designer show houses. I don't know if that's a thing other places, but in Oklahoma, designer show houses are a way that they designers get like a, a house and they all decorate it. And then people come and tour it and money is raised for a charity. So I would work for different designers and I would sew for them. I see. So, yeah. So sewing was part of of sort of the, the money-making. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, from the beginning. Um, that's interesting. And you were catering as well. Yes. Um, do you like to cook? I love to cook. Yeah, in fact, I have a section on the Badass blog where I've, I've become one of the, um, I've joined the cult of the Instant Pot. Oh, I know. That's a huge thing now. It's huge. And it's actually been a lot of fun because there's, I mean, the fact of the matter is I'm a really good cook, but I don't have a lot of time right now. So it's been fun to experiment with something that used to take a long time to make that is really wicked fast now. So that's been a lot of fun. And I think showing that to quilters because, heck, it gives you more time to quilt. <laughs> right. Good point. Yeah. And it's like um, it's like a pressure cooker. Am I right about yes, that? It is a pressure cooker. Okay. It's an electric pressure cooker. So um, I actually spent a lot of time with the, the total fear of pressure cookers after my neighbor shot the lid off of hers up through her ceiling. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that happens. I mean, that was it, like what happened to pressure cookers. Yeah. It did. That's exactly what happened. And it doesn't happen with modern pressure cookers because the electronics shut it down if there's too much pressure. So this is not scary at all. And so I I've really enjoyed it. Oh, cool. Hmm, I might have to look into getting one. Okay. All right. So, um, so you kind of strike me as somebody who sort of jumps in with both feet, you know? So I, I read in an interview that, um, shortly after you made that first quilt after, after looking at Jackie Gehring's quilts and, um, sort of thinking, hmm, maybe I should, should make a quilt that you went out and bought a long arm machine, like not too long after, after that. Is that right? It's true. I actually, um, I have to give full credit to my husband, who is always amazingly supportive of my endeavors. I had already had a sewing machine um, that was probably about 16 years old at that point. It had been one of the first embroidery machines, so I really enjoyed that. Um, but I was like, oh, I need a new machine. And so he and I went over, and he bought me a Bernina 830 sewing machine. And I was like, this is amazing, and I quilted that quilt on it. And then I was like, oh, wow, I need a long arm now. And so within a month of finishing the first quilt, um, I had a big new sewing machine and a long arm. So um, that's, yeah. I mean, right. Like you're like quilting, like this is it. You know? <laughs> this is it. Um, right. yeah, it's true. That's so funny. So, um, so were you intending to sort of add long arming services to your business at that time? Or was it really just like, okay, quilting, uh, you know, a, a king size quilt on my, home sewing machine is, is really hard on me and hard on, on my body and hard to do. And so I'm just going to, you know, get this long arm for myself. You know, it really was for myself. Um, we, we have kind of this family rule is that, that you can't buy something unless you got the cash for it. So I had the cash for it because I see a lot of people buy long arms and then have to be a slave to the payment on it. I never wanted that. So, um, I bought the long arm, brought it home, started having a lot of fun with it. It wasn't a business thing. Previous to that, I was doing a lot of embroidery design work, but I was getting a little bit bored with it. And so it worked out well. So it was just something new to learn. I'm always about learning something new. Okay. And so did you start blogging at that same time? Like I know that you like to write and you like to blog. 
Um, and your current blog is the Badass Quilter Society blog. But were were you blogging before that? I was. I was blogging under um, the name um, Domestic Anarchy and uh, with a growing blog there. And then I spun off. I started talking about my long arming on there and spun off a small, very short lived blog. As most people know, you can kind of be a serial blogger, uh, which close to being a serial quilter without the bloody gore. <laughs> But I had a blog for a very short part time called The Long Arm Virgin. And so it was about my adventures of setting up and learning to long arm. And that is where it spun off into Badass Quilter. Okay. And so what was, so around what time, I guess, what year was, was that spinoff to the Badass Quilter? The spinoff was within the first year of having my long arm. Okay. So, so um, 2010 or 11, somewhere in there? Yeah. So, because what happened was, is that um, I had one, um, I bought my long arm and that very day or like that week, I guess, um, Handy Quilter had had a contest that said, tell us about your long arm. Tell us about buying it. Tell us about getting it. Why are you a long arm quilter? And so I thought, oh, what the heck? Because they, they basically told it to me as a throwaway as I was leaving after I bought my long arm in that kind of that first week. And so I wrote this thing to them. I thought, what the heck? And so I entered. And then a couple of weeks later, maybe even a month or more, um, I get this call and they're like, are you sitting down? I'm like, I don't even know who you are. Why are you asking me if I'm sitting down? And they say, well, and they introduce themselves that they're from Handy Quilter and that I was chosen as one of the people to be in the Handy Quilter ad campaign. So, yeah. so what was your essay about that you wrote to them? I mean, what were they, what were they looking for? You know, I honestly don't remember exactly what they're looking for, but the way my essay ended up running was basically is that I thought I was too young to be a quilter. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, that's fascinating. Yeah. And so, and I think I probably was close to one of the youngest ones. Um, How old do you remember how old you were around? Gosh, you know, okay, so let's see, I'm 48 now. So maybe I was 42. Right. Um, To think that you're too young to be a quilter at 42, that kind of says something, doesn't it? It does say something. I mean, and it was just, you know, it was the stance I wrote it in because even at that age, people can sometimes be dismissive. Now, I look younger on a good day. Um, I look younger than I am. And especially at that point, um, three years of quilt shop ownership have really put some age on me. But (laughs) it's the truth. And um, but people can quilt stores can be a little dismissive of somebody if they don't think that they fit the mold and so I would get dismissed in quilt shops and so that kind of where that's where that came from I see okay so so you got to be in their ad campaign and then um did that prompt you to start the new blog the badass quilter society well um kind of past that happened um I was getting more notoriety for my quilting and um, a company, which I'm not going to name, came and asked me um, to do some work with them. And um, I said, okay, I was really flattered. And then, so we'd done the whole deal and said, yes, I'll be doing this for you. And then they came back to me and said, oh, you know what? You can't work for us. And I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, we're going to invoke our moralities clause. Uh, we found out that you write about sexuality as well. And you can't do that. And you can take it all down and remove it and strip your name out of all that. Or you can't work for us. And where were you writing about sexuality that they found that? 
you know what? I write about sexuality pretty often. Um, anybody who's followed me personally or followed my blog over at Domestic Anarchy um, uh, knows that I write about sexuality and I lecture about it sometimes um, because I really think that sex education is very, very important um, all through life. And so <clears throat> there's quite a few places that I'd written for and it was no secret. And I just didn't even think about it in the context of because I don't think we're all one person, you know, we're many people and we have many different, you know, interests. And so anyway, they said, yeah, no, you can't do this because our readership, our company following will be offended by that. And so that is when I wrote my um, now here to famous. And I say that very tongue in cheek uh, post saying that people really need to stand up for who they were in the quilt world and be more badass. And so then I made the Facebook page because as I'm what I'll say is anybody any idiot can make a Facebook page and um, I thought a couple of my friends and I would hang out there and it'd be a goofy thing and then an hour later a hundred people had joined and how did they find out about it they had read your it, the, it was sort of like a manifesto a little bit it was it was a manifesto of, of sorts and I put a link to it and people just started joining and they started telling their friends about it and then so Oh, not too long later, it had a thousand people, and that was pretty funny and cool. And and then it just took off from there. And so, where are you now? About how many people are on that Facebook community now? Sixteen thousand five hundred and something. That's wonderful. And yeah, yeah, that's pretty. I mean, that's pretty amazing. So that was over the past. I don't know how many years. Maybe three or four years. Something about like that. four years now. Okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, and so what do you think it was that people were responding to? I'm assuming that most of the people who joined, especially early on, were quilters or people interested in, in quilting. Um, and so somehow they, they read what you wrote, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about what it was that you wrote. And I'm just wondering what you think resonated so much. I think there's were more people than I ever dreamed who also felt disenfranchised by the quilt world as it stood then. And quite frankly, as a lot of it stands now, um, not a lot has changed over those years. I mean, change takes a long time sometimes. Um, and they were feeling left out. They were feeling left out of guilds, um, stores. They weren't seeing themselves represented in magazines many places like that. So they felt a kinship to the idea. Um, I, I, th I always talk about Badass Quilter Society being like the cilantro of the quilting world. You either <laughs> love it or you don't. I mean, because we all know somebody who, who loves cilantro. I'm a cilantro lover. But, you know, that person who's like, no, because it tastes like soap to them, because it's really a biochemical thing with cilantro is that it tastes like soap. It tastes saponified. And so they hate it. And um, badass culture societies like that for people too. They're either they either get it or they don't. Mm -hmm. And the people who don't get it, which it sounds like this company that you were considering working with uh, was was among the don't get it camp. Uh, what yeah. do you think about what do you think they're they're sort of turned off by? Like what what about it is is making them be like, whoa, this is not for me. Um, I think you just start with the name. Um, some people are really offended by the term badass. I never ever even considered the thought that it would be negative um, because to me being badass is really standing up for what you believe in and taking a stand and being, you know, being your beliefs and, and kind of walking your walk. So I never considered it anything even remotely negative. 
But I've come to find out that the phrase badass and maybe just the word ass itself um, is highly offensive to some people. And I, you know, I can't help that, but it's definitely not what we mean. We don't mean it in any offensive way. We mean it in a very powerful sense. Yeah. in some way your name almost, um, calls the herd a little bit. In other words, mm -hmm. if you're immediately, if you visit the Facebook page or, or the blog, uh, for the first time and you see the header, um, and you read the word and you see badass with quilter next to it, you know, next to it and you feel offended. Um, it almost is, and, and you leave, you know, it sort of almost like um, separates out the people who may be receptive to your message from the people who may maybe aren't by having this name that is almost sort of polemical. Oh, yeah. It's very self-selecting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you're okay with the fact that you're not serving everybody. Oh, yeah. No, um, I really feel like that there's a niche to be served and then and I don't have to to go off and try to lure those other people in with changing who I am, because first place, that would be ridiculous because you really can't um, at a certain point, even if you try to make those kind of changes, they're not authentic and they won't stick. Um, while um, in the course of like daily communications at the grocery store, I don't curse. I do curse sometimes in my posts and I have been known to put um, things in there that make people's eyebrows, you know, waggle, but um, for, for effect sometimes, and sometimes just because that's me. But if that's not, if that doesn't resonate with somebody, it's not the right place for them. And that's okay because there's a million other places out there that they can uh, become part of that culture. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Unanimous Craft. Unanimous Craft is a pretty remarkable thing. It's a website where you can find a comprehensive index of places to sell your handmade and small batch work. This is the kind of list that would take a lot of time and a lot of effort to research and compile on your own. But you don't have to because Rosalie Gale, owner of Shower Art and Ugly Baby in Seattle, Washington, has done it for you. And she welcomes your help and contributions as well. The site is free to use and also gives you the option of upgrading to a premium membership that will give you access to the craft show calendar, which lists the dates that craft show applications open and close all around the country. Unanimous Craft is not totally new, but the site has been beautifully revamped and the content is all fresh and totally up to date. The site was built by and is maintained by Rosalie, and if you don't know her, she is an incredible maker herself, and she has a really deep understanding of what it takes to make it as a crafter and a maker in today's marketplace. Her own shop, Ugly Baby, has been in business for 10 years. Craft show season is fast approaching, so head over to unanimouscraft.com and see what craft shows and shops are going to be the right fit for your product this holiday season. And if you upgrade your membership, use the link unanimouscraft.com slash naps, and I'll put that link in the show notes for this episode, and you'll get a special offer. Thank you so much for all you're doing for the community, Unanimous Craft. And now, back to my conversation with Maddie. Right. And so by talking um, in such a frank way, and also sometimes in a way that, um, you know, causes people to be offended and that sort of thing. I'm betting, um, because I've been blogging long enough and have written about enough controversial topics myself, that you at times are the target of some angry commenters or 
people who are saying mean things and negative things, some trolls, that kind of thing. And I wondered how you think about that and how you deal with that on kind of a, a personal level too. You know, I think you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. There are always going to be times that people are not going to like what I say. And that's really okay too, because it helps them understand themselves more and it helps me become firmer about who I am. Um, I have occasionally gotten some really, really ugly emails and that's okay. As long as they're not threatening, um, Past that, I'm okay with people having, you know, really diverse and powerful conversations. I have only um, edited or taken administrative, you know, um, done things on the Facebook page when somebody uh, was very, very ugly and basically wished somebody else's child dead. And then I put my foot down. Otherwise, I let conversations pretty much roll around. And the community itself is pretty self-policing in that way. And they will call down somebody who's not being um, authentic or being kind. I see. Okay. Yeah, I think that's, that's good for people to hear. As far as becoming more firm in your own um, understanding of what you believe um, and sort of not taking those comments as, you know, actual critique of you as a person, but being able to say, okay, this, let me think about this. Is this what I think? Is this what I believe? Okay, then I'm just going to stick with what I believe, you know? Um, and it's hard to do. <laughs> you know, the internet gives people uh, anonymity and sort of permission to say say things that they probably wouldn't say in person um, when they're writing either on an email or on a Facebook page. So it can be oh, hard geez. to navigate. Yeah. yeah. No, somebody who once met me by accident, she thought she hated me. And um, we've since become friends since then. And we met in a social circle that she didn't know who I was. And then she said, oh, my gosh, you're actually really nice. Uh-huh. And I was like, wow. And I said, did you think I was not? And she said, yes. And I said, well, why? She said, because of your blog. And I said, do you read my blog? And she said, no. <laughs> it's just the name. I just don't. It was just the name. She right. thought she thought I was a horrible person. Mm -hmm. And on that context alone. So that was really very telling. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Okay, so so I want to talk a little bit about this idea of the quilt police, um, which mm -hmm. I, I'm sure you you think about and wrestle with, and um, and there's this sort of feeling that there there's a group of people somehow up out there who get to determine what is and what isn't a good quilt, and who is and who isn't a quilter, and. I know that you've said that, um, and this is a quote from you, that you said, um, all quilts are valid expressions of this art form. And then you've also said that your quarter inch seam is somewhat laughable, but you are still a quilter. So what is your take on this notion of the quilt police? I think any industry is going to have people who come up and feel like they are going to be, become the self-appointed arbiters of what is. So I think currently right now we see that split between where it was once um, kind of thrown on the mantle of the traditional quilter. I think right now, especially, we see modern quilting trying to put some parameters on what they are, or at least the modern quilting um, community on high. But, you know, the honest to goodness truth is, is that you can you can believe those things or you can shed them and just do your own thing and that's okay as well uh-huh yeah absolutely and it's hard to do i mean sometimes knowing that your quilt isn't perfect can stop you from even making it or 
if you do make it stop you from sharing it? Oh, absolutely. When we did um, AQS, we partnered with AQS a couple, let's see, two years ago, I guess. And we did a badass quilter show within the AQS show. And I was really touched by the amount of people who said they'd never put a quilt in a show before because they didn't feel they were perfect enough to be part of that quilting world. And that they felt really emboldened by the fact that they could come in under the umbrella of Badass Quilter Society and show what they had done and their art. And it was amazingly diverse. And that was really fun that way. But there are a lot of people who are holding back because they feel that judgment and they can't lift themselves past caring what somebody else thinks. Yeah. And you're really dedicated to that, that sense of diversity that, you know, not all quilters, as you, as you said earlier, um, when you were in your early forties felt like you couldn't be a quilter because you were too young, but that not all quilters are sort of the stereotypical quilter, which we could say is some, a woman, probably a white woman, probably a heterosexual white woman who's maybe in her, her mid sixties, something like that is, is a quilter. And uh, or maybe maybe even a little older than that. Um, so so I wondered what your sort of what is it about bringing diversity to the quilting community that really sort of lights you on fire and makes you motivated? You know that that seems to be one of the the big pushes that you have on the Badass Quilter Society. Absolutely. You know what? I think we're better when we're all together. We learn better. We communicate better. We're just better when. All of the parts of us, and I'm talking about the parts of humanity, are represented within the quilting world. So, I mean, that's absolutely right. When you open up the majority of quilt books, what you see are middle-aged white lady hands and middle-aged white lady faces. And, you know, I'm pretty darn close. And unless I'm going to live to be, you know, 100 and something at this point, um, I am a middle-aged white lady. But I want to see more than myself there. I want to see goth young kids. I want to see, you know, black faces. I want to see men. I want to see people with physical handicaps. Because all those people are out there quilting. But the industry does not really want to show them because that is not necessarily where the dollars are. And we all know that the industry chases after the dollars. And I think that there are dollars to be had, but most of them are being held in the pot by the little white woman. And until we embrace all those parts of the quilt world, those dollars are not going to come in. And that representation is not going to show Um, unless we're really um, very cognizant of doing it. And it can be difficult because even like if I'm looking for, let's say, stock photo work for an article or something like that, um, it's very hard to find images of diversity out there. So you have to spend 10 times longer doing it. But um, I hope that by taking up the mantle of this cause that people will start seeing that out there. Yeah, I think that's really admirable. And um, I know that at QuiltCon, this past QuiltCon, there was a diversity uh, panel that was moderated by Sandy from the Crafty Planner. And I listened to that, and I thought it was really a big step. Um, and I applaud the, the Modern Quilt Guild for including that. And um, I know that you're, um, you're going to be teaching a workshop at Quilt Market in, in the fall, so just in a few months from now. Um, And and what is that going to be about? Well, so that is at Quilt Market. So that this um, presentation is really geared toward quilt store owners and other people in the quilting and sewing industry. But it's the title they gave it was being a rock star on Facebook. Um, I don't consider myself to be a rock star on Facebook, but 
I do believe that Facebook is about your face. Um, and what I say in it is that Facebook is about your face. Instagram is about your stuff. And That's an interesting way to think about it. And what do you mean by what? Can you say a little bit more about that? You bet. Um, I think a lot of people don't like the way they look. So you don't see pictures of them because as we grow older or sometimes when we're younger, we get really camera shy. And so quilt store owners, they'll show their fabric all day long, but you can't make a relationship with fabric no matter what people say. <laughs> you make a relationship with people. And for quilt stores to gain um, and to expand their following, they need a person to relate to. And so that the quilt store owners or somebody in that store needs to become their face and be there and you need to see their face. And if their face happens to have a double chin like mine does a lot of times in my pictures, you can go back and see like when I take selfies with a lot of people who come in the store, um, I snap it and go. I mean, unless it's just hideous, um, because let's face it, um, I do have a double chin. I am aging, but I'm still going to smile and be happy that they're there. And if you erase that away, you're erasing away the connection point. Mm -hmm. And so your your feeling is that quilt shop owners should use social media as a way, especially Facebook, as a way to make a human connection with their audience and customer base. Absolutely. I mean, I would say that that's exactly what um, Jenny Doan's face is to Missouri Star, because if so, if you mention Missouri Star, people are going to put Jenny's face with that in their head. And, and I um, think Jenny's kind of a, an interesting example in that she is a middle-aged white lady, um, yeah. but she's also not, you know, like a model. I mean, she's a, an attractive woman yeah. for sure, but she's not super skinny and she doesn't have, you know, perfect hair, perfect skin. You know, she's kind yeah. of like, she's she us. looks like my neighbor, you know? She is. She is exactly that. And I think that can be really reassuring because we have somebody out there that people love. And um, and that's one thing I get a lot. Now, I have to admit, it's a little shocking when people recognize me um, places like in the airport or whatever. So that's always I still haven't gotten used to and that. Does that happen because I know you enjoy doing um, like Facebook Live, which is mm -hmm. kind of a newer feature of Facebook. Yep. But um, is that happening even before then just because you are sharing pictures of yourself so frequently? Yeah, um, since I'm not afraid to put my picture on there, um, people have that face to relate to. And so um, the funny part is, is really occasionally people have foot and mouth disease. So I had a lady come in and she came into the shop because she was very excited. She was really sweet. And she said, wow, you actually look thinner in your photos. <laughs> You're like, um. I was like, that's the first. <laughs> And I'm like, you know what, I'm not, nobody's going to be surprised. Um, there was years that my photo, like many mothers, did not show up. You'd think that my children were delivered by Amazon instead of by me because there are no pictures of me for many, many, many years in my children's life because either I was the one behind the camera or I hid from the camera. And what I do you think happened that helped you to get past that? Because I think you're very right that, that many, many, especially women, perhaps men as well, um, at times myself included, just feel like I don't want to be in this picture. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm never happy, you know, never happy with the way I look, um, in a photo and definitely don't want to be like sharing that all over the place if it's not edited and that kind of thing. So what did, what, what did, you know, what happened that helped you get past that? 
You know what? I realized that it wasn't going to be a shock to anybody that I was fat. It, it, I was the only person uncomfortable about my weight because everybody's, my children still loved me. People still knew. Nobody was going to look back on these photos in 10 years and go, oh, my God, I thought you were skinny. I mean, it wasn't, nothing's going to change except my level of comfortableness with this. My children are going to still see the mother that they remembered. My friends are going to see the person who supported them through hellish times in their lives. Nothing about that was going to change if I didn't change the way I saw myself showing up in my own life. And so one day I just decided that I was going to be in my photos again and I did it. Now I'm not going to say that I love every photo that I see of myself and I have learned tips and tricks. And that's one of the things I'll be teaching in the Facebook, in the, um, quilt market um, class is how to get a good photo of yourself so that you're happy with it. But otherwise I really felt like I needed to show up in my own life digitally at the very least. Yeah. Important. Okay, so I mean, I know that you have a, a big family. Um, I do. You've had, um, you have six children, and I know you've written a little bit about, you know, some of the hardships and some of the, the complexity of family life. Uh -huh. um, you had a child, uh, Gabriel, who who passed away. He did. He died. Um, he died two days after he was born. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, and and you know so so you're you're kind of open about about some of that some of those hardships and like I said some of the complexity and you you've even written um, somewhat about sexuality on the Badass Quilter Society yep. blog um, about being in a polyamorous relationship and I wanted to know if you wanted to talk a little bit about what that what that means. Wow. So this is really, this one's a hard one and you might end up editing all this out. So I mean I'll say that um, because although I'm not. Um, closed about it um, by any means because it is out there you can find it um, the fact that I am bisexual and that my life includes um, both a male partner and a female partner and so everybody might run from my blog at this point I mean there might be a mass exodus and that 16,000 might fall down to something much much lower but I think we all have our path to walk in this life and if you if you can walk it as truthfully as possible that you're better off for it when I wrote the post about it and it's a really small post and people can dig back through my blog if they want to find it um it was amazing the amount of people who contacted me privately to say Either my kid is gay and I've never been able to really talk about that and I've hidden it from everybody online or um, I'm gay or I'm bisexual or I'm transgender. Um, there are it's amazing the stories that are out there that people are deathly afraid to share because they feel like they will be ostracized not only in their personal life, but in their digital life and their work life as well. Yeah, and I think it's incredibly brave to share, um, you know, a lifestyle that I think some people would be like, whoa, you know, or would be turned off by or would sort of, I don't know, just maybe have never met somebody who shared that openly um, and and to be, to be able to say, like, this is me um, and, and to put that, you know, put that out there. And it sounds like people were, for some people, it gave them permission to then share something about themselves that they felt that they were never able to share before. Um, and so, anyway, it's not something everybody would want to share, you know, about their sexuality, and they would feel that that is private. But, um, but some people do feel comfortable sharing it, and when you do, it does seem like it opens up 
you know, permission for other people to do the same. And sometimes that's exactly what they need. It is. I mean, it's been very um, interesting as I've done it. I mean, I am sure, I mean, the truth is we lost personal friends and I am sure that I will be interested in watching after this to see what happens because like I said, it's not, it's not something that I stand up on top of my building and shout about, but it's also not something that I hide because I think when we hide, we build walls and when we build walls, we cannot connect with people. And, and my, journey is really about connecting with people and lifting them up and letting them find their own place um, within their craft, within their life, within this planet, really. Yeah, yeah right. And so it fits actually with your mission, you know. Um, it's almost like you have a mission for life and you also have a mission for your place within the quilting industry. And, and those two missions are really aligned. <laughs> and, and then because the honest truth really is, is at this point, my mission and my ability to be in the quilt world um, have like this really um, this airspace between them because quilting um, companies are very hesitant to work with anybody that steps anywhere outside of a norm. I mean, let's face it, you can look at the new AQS issue about the quilt that they just pulled um, from Kathy's quilt that they pulled because some one person thought they saw a male genital organ um, in it, which wasn't even in there. And so we, we tread this very, very, very careful line within that. And so for me, for me to exist in there as a business relies on people supporting and it. So it's not necessarily that my support fully comes from the different companies out there because a lot of them are not willing to say, Hey, we support her mission they won't say it publicly. They will say it privately to me and they will come up, say amazing things. And they'll say, but our company can't work with you. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, so I, I, I don't write about the same topics that you write about. I guess there's at times some crossover, but, um, but I do, um, I do. One thing that drew me to you is that I also don't shy away from controversy at times. And so I've written, you know, a, a few, maybe a half dozen um, fairly controversial articles about the quilting industry over the last few years. And I, I will say that I've had the same problem. Um, so there are companies that won't work with me um, that have openly told me that. <laughs> that I'm, yeah. um, and, and, um, and, you know, companies that I did work with up into a certain point and then after I did something, you know, wrote this article or whatever, have then said, we, we can no longer work with you. Um, and, you know, I think there, you lose those relationships. Not that I'm trying to burn bridges, but I do believe in the truth and in shining a light in dark corners. And I think that you do as well. But when you do operate as a business within that same industry, it, it does pose challenges. It definitely does pose challenges. Um, the kind of the my workaround at this point really is is that our next step with Badass Culture Society is is installing a paid platform, so people who really support Badass Culture Society and our mission can pay a small fee. It's gonna be like four ninety nine a month and have more exclusive content, so that that makes up for so that I can then highlight the companies that will work with us, but not necessarily they don't necessarily have enough money really to 
to supply me with a living wage, um, but that my membership can help do that. And I think I feel very authentic about that and saying that I can't continue to work without a certain amount of support. And because otherwise I need to go become a greeter at Walmart or something. I don't know what else. I mean, um, but so for me to continue to share messages that resonate with them, I have to have a certain amount of support. And that's okay because it doesn't have to be much. It's less than the cup of expensive coffee at Starbucks. But um, that is my workaround from kind of pardon the phrase whoring myself out to companies and trying to become somebody else that I'm not because I'm never going to fit in their narrow little box. Now, that being said, I do have some amazing companies who stand behind me and are living their authentic best selves as well. And they were part of um, the celebration for our 16,000. And I'm really very happy to be working with companies like that. Yeah. Okay. That's great. So I think maybe I will... um... I will link to the 16,000 celebration so that people can kind of check out what that, that list looks like. Absolutely. And there'll be actually another post that, um, that you'll be able to check out that'll be talking a little bit more about them since the 16,000 celebration is over. I would hate to sell to uh, disappoint people. Uh, we gave away amazing things. And then when we do our next celebration, we'll be giving away even more amazing things. But that celebration is over right now. Right. Yeah. But just to see the, the names of the companies, sure. I think is important too. So I want to talk a little bit since we are talking about money and business mm-hmm. about school. So yeah. um a few years ago, you uh, decided to open a brick-and-mortar shop. It sounded like there was uh, another brick-and-mortar shop. Uh, you live in, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and there was another one that was closing, um, but it was too far from your house to sort of buy that one business and take it over, but you decided, hmm, maybe I should I should open my own quilt shop. So do you want to tell a little bit about the, the story of Spool and, and, and what it's been like? Awesome. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There was an amazing shop here um, just right outside of Chattanooga, and she decided to retire. It did go up for sale. We examined that. It was not the right deal for us for a many multitude of reasons, but it did seem like a good time to open up a shop that was kind of an extension of Badass Culture Society. So um, the funny part is when I went to the city, because our legal business name is Badass Culture Society, they're like, oh, you shouldn't use that name. (laughs) (laughs) And because the truth is, is that Badass Coffee used to be here in Chattanooga, and they got a million complaints against them because of the name Badass in it. And Badass Coffee actually packed up and left um, because they got tired of it. But so I said, well, no, I'm not that foolish. And so I named the store Spool. And we opened up three years ago, this coming September, and very quickly uh, drew a really amazing um, bit of publicity due to how we set things up. It's, I'll say it's a beautiful store. It is um, in a growing, it's in an upcoming district area in a really beautiful old brick building. And we do, we focus on um, bright and happy fabrics for every quilter. And what do you think about the shop is sort of unique or different from maybe some of the other quilt shops you've been in? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I wish I had a customer here to say because they are, they are much more articulate about what they see when they come in our shop. We... Um, we pretty carefully curate the fabrics that are in the shop and have the 
when we pick fabrics out, we want them to flow from one section of the store to the other. We're not a very large shop. We're only 1,600 square feet, so there's only so much room. So we actually limit the number of collections and stuff that we bring in so that there's um, there's airspace in the shop. You don't feel that there's not towering um shelves that feel like they're going to teeter down on you or anything like that. There are a million really beautiful quilt shops here in the United States. Actually, there's probably just about 3000 and something. And I think each one has their own flavor. Ours has its own particular flavor and it really has to do with maybe a little bit more bohemian feel to it or um, something about the way we package things in the store. We're very conscientious in the way we, we package or unpackage. One of my big things is, is that I don't like to see um, pegboard and hooks and utilitarian package and stuff like that. So if it's a really good product and it comes in ugly packaging, we take it out. If it's a good package, it's a good product and good packaging, it gets to stay in. So we're very particular about the look of things that are in the store. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that you're also welcoming to whomever oh. comes in the door. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's actually very fun because we have quite a few male customers. And what they say is that they feel comfortable the minute they walk in the store. And they are really free about sharing that with us. And that always makes me feel really good, let alone you know, we have uh, cosplay, kids who are doing cosplay. We have um, people of all identities who shop. And we assume that everybody who comes in the store is a quilter or a sewer. So if it's a guy coming in, they're not immediately shown the quote unquote man chair in the corner. But everybody is a quilter until they deny it. <laughs> I think you need that on a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, okay, and so I wondered when you when you um, when you look at the quilting industry now as a whole, um, which is something I try to do, um, and and I wondered what what you see as as kind of the big issues that we're facing right now. I know that's kind of a hard question to think through, but on, especially on the fly because I, I didn't prepare you beforehand. But but um, but if you had to sort of name sort of you know what you think are are the the big issues that are facing us right now as we head into the end of 2016, um, what, what, what do you think is, is important to think about? Wow. Um, I've actually started a blog post that, that's called um, What We Have Here is a Failure to Communicate. I think that we have a really, um, we have a disconnection between what people understand about quilting and small business because the majority of quilting really is small businesses. There are really large entities out there. Um, and maybe it's, maybe we're at this natural evolution point where things really are changing because quilt shops, um, are having a hard time succeeding out there. Brick and mortar quilt shops. I consider myself amazingly lucky that spool has done as well as it has done. given when we opened it, because I really think that that three years ago, point was like this tipping point. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell um, in his book, Tipping Point, um, talks about like that thing that moves an industry or a person or an event into a different trajectory of things happening. And I think we have hit this tipping point um, where people don't understand what it takes to keep a quilt store open because they have different needs and wants that are being imposed upon them. So I think the communication point between the customer and the quilt shop, um, it's just not there right now. Mm -hmm. And, 
Um, and so you, do you feel like five years from now, the landscape for quilt shops will look different or even 10 years from now? Oh, I think five years from now, it'll look great. It'll be look incredibly different. I mean, there are things that are changing about the quilt world right now. I mean, you've got like, you know, new amazing things that have happened, um, like row by row, different entities like uh, video classes and things like that. I think when we, we've got row by row, which is the human touch, you have video classes with which um, are obviously not the human touch, but done by very um, wonderful humans and are connecting with people in a different way. I think we're just looking at a paradigm shift in the quilting world. And I think that it can be a bumpy ride for a couple of years. And that's really gonna sort um, <clears throat> the those who can survive from those who need to go ahead and pack it in and go on to a different uh, amazing calling in their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we're gonna see some changes as well. I think there's, we've hit a certain saturation point of social media and, and e-commerce and mm -hmm. online classes and sort of the internet in general as it relates to craft and as it relates to quilting and so I mean it's been all of those things have been around for for a long time I mean I've, I've had my blog for 11 years all of this stuff has been here for a long time but it started really small and it didn't really infiltrate all corners and I think it, we're at a moment now where, where that's starting to happen um, where people who are young and old of all different walks of life are accessing quilt, quilting media, quilting supplies, et cetera, online. And that's starting to, to have an effect on the way that the brick and mortar businesses or, or all different businesses of the industry operate. Um, oh, and so, yeah. yeah. Totally. I mean, I, I think to that point, um, when designers, um, quilt authors, book authors, whatever, show things on Instagram, I will immediately get things, people asking, do you have that yet? And I'm like, they haven't even published that yet. Um, or fabrics that are being um, kind of like sneak peeked for quilt market, people will say, do you have that yet? And I'm like, that won't be available for six months. Um, and they want it right then because they saw somebody show it on Instagram or whatever. And so you have a time now where consumers see products before even quilt store owners do. And it's a very, because as a, as a business owner, you're working on your business. And so you're not sitting on Instagram all day watching, you know, all those things fly through because you're busy doing the work of the shop. And some of that work is, you know, checking social media and making you stay up to date, but you could never stay up to date as people who are sitting on top of that kind of stuff, watching it in a way that, um, that there's no way to do. And so like, again, you're seeing people who know stuff before quilt store owners do, and that can be kind of an uncomfortable position. Mm, that's a great point. Um, okay, great. So I, I want to make sure we get to some of your recommendations because you've got yeah. some really good ones. And um, the first one is a magazine that I love as well. It's called Flow. And uh, you, you just wrote in your, in your email to me when you were giving me your recommendations, Sigh Divine. It is divine. It is like a little respite in itself. It is expensive. I think it's $22, but it is so worth it. It um, For the person who's looking for this visual feast and this textural feast, um, they often have um, included um, different art papers and stuff like this. So if you're the arty sort who really enjoys inspiration that way, you open it up and it's just like its own little mini vacation wrapped up between two covers. Yeah. And it, it's, is it produced out of the Netherlands? I'm not totally sure. 
I think they actually started there. I think they're publishing now in the United States because when I originally got it, um, it came in with one of those funny stickers on it that you see at Barnes and Noble, and it doesn't have that funny sticker on it okay, anymore. So maybe they have some sort of U.S. distribution thing going uh -huh. on. Uh huh. Yeah, flow is beautiful. Okay, and then you wanted to recommend a brand of scissors that I've never used. Are they Femore scissors? F Femore. Femore. Okay. Are they yeah. Italian then? I. I... They are a beautiful scissor. Um, so I learned about Fomore when I was um, at Quilt Market one time. They, um, I have um, immune issues. And so sometimes that means that I have hand weakness and different things like that. So having an especially sharp and well-honed pair of scissors is really important to me because, I mean, I'm not always using my rotary cutter. There's definitely times that I'm using scissors. And to have a really good pair of scissors is amazingly important because it it cuts down on hand fatigue. Um, and so their stuff is just so well, um, the word's not milled. Is it honed? I'm not even sure what the word is there. Um, but that it reduces my hand fatigue and, and enables me to do, um, more of what I want to do. And so, um, then I got to know the people from Fomore. In fact, they are being, they are um, actually one of the sponsors. Um, we're doing a Rocky Horror Challenge, a celebration of Rocky Horror, and through Badass Culture Society. And they're one of our, one of the people who've really stood up for Badass Culture Society. But it wouldn't matter even if they didn't, if they were just totally neutral about us. I still love their scissors. Okay. <laughs> Good one. And then you wanted to recommend um, something it sounds like you've been doing since you were a child, which is sewing clothes. Yeah, um, I'm really seeing that as one of the renaissance things that's happening in the quilt world. If I could possibly say that quilting, that some people might be getting a little bored with it. I hate saying that, but there are, I mean, there are infinite quilts to make, but sometimes you want to try something a little different. So I see a lot more garment sewing going on, and I see a lot more people getting back or still doing or exploring again, doing stuffed animals and little stuffies. So between garment sewing and doing smaller projects that are not quilts, and I say quilt like this really big word. Um, so I see garment sewing as um, of the coming horizon. Problematically so though, because garment fabric is really very difficult to come by, a decent garment fabric anymore. And honestly, quilt fabric is not right for every garment. Right, and I, I do see some of the, the quilt, quilt and cotton manufacturers expanding out into some other substrates mm -hmm. that are, are maybe more suitable for garments, but the, yep. the fabric is expensive too. Yes, it is. And actually, the funny part is, is that people, you know, gritch and witch about how expensive uh, quilting cotton is. They have never made garments. Garment fabric is twice to three times as expensive. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you, you've never seen something look more like a budget hobby. Um, quilting looks like a budget hobby compared to garment sewing. Mm, that's interesting. Well, Maddie, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walshy Naps podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. And if um, people want to join the Badass Culture Society or they just want to send you a message after listening to the show, um, is the best place for them to do that on Facebook? That's really the most, most expedient place I'll see it the quickest is uh, going to the Badass Culture Society page on Facebook and then they can hit message. Excellent. Okay, great. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. And thank you to today's episode sponsor, Unanimous Craft, the website where you can go to find all the places to sell your handmade work.
Unanimous Craft is free to use, but with a premium membership, you get access to their comprehensive craft show calendar, where they list not only the show dates, but the dates that applications open and close for shows all around the country. Visit unanimouscraft.com slash naps for a special offer just for Walsh Naps listeners. Thank you, Unanimous Craft. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I will see you next time.